it's a bit of a sickness in a sense that like when you see an opportunity you you want to do it so bad that you you like you'll put other things aside for it i mean it's it's a blessing and a curse um yeah it truly is Hey everyone, welcome to the Founder Hour. We're here today with Eitan Elbaz, who is the co-founder of multiple projects. I won't go through all of them just so we don't start and finish off the podcast with me talking. But he is the co-founder of Render Media, Social Native, Scopely, and he's an investor in other projects as well. And we'll kind of talk about all the things that he's done. Um, but Eitan, we're glad to have you and we're excited to you know hear your story with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So I'm going to kick it off with something a little interesting, um, kind of get you thinking to kind of kind of see, you know, where your head's at and get the juices flowing. If you had done everything you wanted in life and I tell you, Eitan, you know, you're a farmer, you're, you're, you have your own ranch, you know, you're going to be a farmer. What's the one plant that you would grow? You know, the one plant that just came to mind is the one I probably shouldn't say on this show. I mean, I'm thinking that there's like an economic value to this particular plant but i'm just gonna go with my favorite fruit which is the lychee i go crazy for lychees why is that they're just so tasty and the texture is awesome it's like the best fruit it's the one fruit i just go nuts over i walk into trader joe's and i get like four of those boxes at once the little cartons and probably get through like one and a half cartons before i leave the parking lot wow lychees I love it. I, gotta, I feel like I got my lychee game on. I yeah. haven't really had too many of them. Um, cool. So we like to kind of always start off with the backstory. It's, it's really interesting to hear about just kind of the upbringing of founders and what really got them to, to where they are today. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. Did you grow up in L.A.? What was that like? Um, we moved around a couple times. So I, I started the first seven years in Cincinnati, Ohio. I grew up the next seven years in San Antonio, Texas, and kind of really consider that where I'm from, San Antonio, Texas. So I picked up the San Antonio Spurs, which is a fun team to root for, kind of winningest uh, major league, you know, uh, professional team in, yeah, history, I think, American history. Um, they, uh, San Antonio is a fairly, like, it's, it's, it, it's a small, big town, so it's, it's a slow, slow lifestyle. Um, you know, you've got, um, you know, small neighborhoods and you know your neighbors and you, you play ball with your neighbors. Um, and I think I think what's pretty interesting about growing up in these different places is I got to, I really got to feel a few different cultures. So San Antonio, Texas, fairly conservative right-wing area. Mm-hmm. Um, West Palm Beach, Florida, which was kind of a mix. You'd have um, some liberal folks and, and some conservative folks, but still fairly conservative. Los Angeles was kind of eye-opening for me because I got to UCLA and I'd Never seen such a mix of folks before, and that was just awesome. And I knew this was my home. So you came, you came to LA for college. Yeah, came here for UCLA. What did you study in school? Computer science and engineering. Why? Why did you decide to do that? Um, you know, I think uh, I was good at computers. I, w- I was the captain of the computer science team, like eleventh and twelfth grade, but sort of um, unwillingly, I think. Uh, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't necessarily want to be the captain of the computer science team because I didn't think it was all that cool. Um, 
And so when I got to college, I was I was focused on other things. And I, I think the family kind of came back around and said, this this may be something you should explore. I think there's going to be something good at the end of this. And so it was it was really a couple of people around me, a couple of family members who just encouraged me to, to engage with this thing that I was good at. But did you have any idea that this thing that you were good at would turn into you know a career down the line? I did not really envision the future for what it would be. I remember thinking uh, back then with my older brother, at one point we were talking about, you know, it would be awesome to start a business together one day. But then I reached this conclusion. I was like, but all the good businesses were already started. Um, I guess that's the kind of thing you think when you're 18 years old or 19 years old and you haven't seen enough cycles in the world. Um, maybe now it's different. Maybe now businesses happen so quickly. But I don't know. I feel like in the early 90s, uh, the world was still pretty slow, and the idea of starting a company and coming up with a new product just seemed, uh, you know, overwhelming, hard. Where do you even start? So how did you start your first company? <laughs> well, despite all that, all we'd ever do was talk about business ideas, like nonstop. We'd be like, well, what if we could do this? We could do this. Um, and this this actually started back when, you know, Gil and I, my older brother and I were, you know, Selling baseball cards as uh, you know, as kids, and um, you know, we were we were always sort of, I guess, you know, kind of hustling out there to try and figure out if there was some something to buy and sell. Um, but by the time we got to college, both of us were into computers, and so we just kept thinking of software ideas. So it was generally like either a software idea or an internet idea. Internet, you know, as I was finishing, you know, internet was just starting. Um, I remember the day then Gil was like, "You need to check out this thing called Mosaic," which was the predecessor to Mozilla, mm -hmm. predecessor to uh, Firefox, uh, not to Netscape. Um, and so, uh, you know, I remember he pointed me towards the internet and we started trying to think of what are ideas that could spin off of the internet. Mm -hmm. So you go through college and you graduate with this degree in computer science and engineering. Um, what's the next step for you? So I was a programmer for six months and I really did not like being a programmer. And so during those six months, I figured out how can I go and do something else with my computer science engineering degree that I now had. And I found a role at a company called AMD, Advanced Micro Devices. Which their stock is probably still killing it right now, right? Because they're the only one of two companies who knows how to mine crypto. <laughs> right. Um, but but not nearly as good as NVIDIA. And at one point, Warren Buffett was, I think, in, or he, he held a he? lot of their shirt. If I'm not mistaken, I think that so. That may yeah. be true. I haven't yeah. followed them for yeah. a long time. But uh, they were looking for salespeople that that had either a computer science engineer or electrical engineering degree. So I was like, okay, this is something I could do unique, um, you know, with this degree. And so I went and worked as a computer uh, technical sales engineer for three years at AMD. And what did that experience lead to? Um, I got to sort of just get to feel different parts of a business. So as a salesperson, you get to start meeting you know, the different people in a business, uh, the, the president or the CEO or the engineer or the marketing person, you start to get to know, like, who do I have to convince in this organization to buy this semiconductor chip? And the people you're talking to are also trying to think about, like, what's the business I'm trying to build? And oftentimes they're asking me, like, do you think this is a good idea? Do you think I should build this? And, you know, my first year, I'm thinking, I don't, I'm just selling a chip. I'm just a 22-year-old kid who's got a flash processor and you I think you said you need one. And, you know, by the end of year three, it was like they're coming to you and they're asking you so often and they're so kind of confused about what they want to build that you start 
putting yourself in their shoes and realizing, you know, not everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody's a little bit trying to read the, you know, read the future, you know, do a little fortune telling of what product's going to be, um, what product's going to be important next. And so, you know, it's interesting at that moment in time, um, internet, like 1999, all the internet stocks went nutso, just nutso. And, uh, it was that moment I was like, I need to quit what I'm doing and go do internet, um, anything. And Gil and I came up with an idea and we went and did this idea. Um, now, it's interesting, of course, the market crashed a year or two later, but I was already in it. Um, I look right now what's happening with crypto. And I think the identical same thing's happening where you get probably a bunch of 25, 26-year-old kids who are like, I'm going to drop everything and go do crypto. And 94% of them are going to probably toil away for two years and end up like worse off than they are right so now. So are you predicting a crash? I mean, it already happened in the last 48 hours, well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we lost 50% in 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a crash. Uh, you know, it took the NASDAQ something like 10 or 15 years to regain. So, you know, what'll Bitcoin settle down, peak down at? I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to go ahead and guess this, but enough people have quit their jobs to say they're going to do a crypto thing. And a, a small percentage of them are going to succeed and be wildly successful and the vast majority of them are going to unfortunately toil away um but you know maybe they'll have some good good experiences along the way and hopefully they don't drive themselves too crazy so you study engineering in college and you your first job out of school is actually not as a developer really it's it's a sales you know my second job is our second job was sales um how long were you at that company and, and when did you sort of transition to starting your own thing yeah, uh, I was at that company for about three years, and um, one of our, it was interesting, one of the folks I was talking to, uh, I was trying to sell microchips to, is telling me about, I'm going to start this new internet PC business. And I can tell, once again, this is a guy who wasn't totally sure about what he wanted to do or wanted to build, but it seemed like he had some resource and wanted to dig in. And at that point, I said, hey, I do have this side project thing. I don't want to talk to you about it on work hours because it's it's not appropriate. So what I'd like to do is come after work with my brother, um, set an appointment. Let's let's talk to you about this other thing I'm, I'm thinking about working on, we're, we're working on. And uh, by this point, Gil and I had already pitched probably 10 or 15 investors um, who'd sort of, you know, mostly all passed. But, um, but this particular investor was really into it and 12 hours later gave us a term sheet. Um, so that was pretty exciting and, you know, it wasn't even, but, you know, about a week later after this meeting, um, we had a signed term sheet and I I think I'd gave notice days later. So within a week or two of that meeting, I'd gave notice. So was this Oingo? That was Oingo. Yeah. And which, which then on became, uh, applied semantics. Tell, tell us about how those early days were and, and how that kind of transition happened. Yeah. Oingo was, was totally the garage. We all moved into a house. And we all lived in the house. Um, when I watched the movie The Social Network, I, it felt exactly like my life in so many ways and the way we lived. We we had 20-some people working in the house. We had eight people living in the house. But it wasn't mm-hmm. like an eight-bedroom. It was a five-bedroom. There were just people sleeping on floors. And, and, this was the, and this was with the money that you had raised from that investor? No. Uh, interestingly, we were able to move into this house – you know – L.A. wasn't that expensive in 1999. We rented a pretty fun little house in the hills um, up Crescent Heights, mm-hmm. uh, north of Sunset, for 
it was like $4,800, $4,600. And so five roommates, we each paid whatever it was, eight, $900. The company paid $800 for rent. Wow. And we got up to 20 people on that. Awesome. So, and as you said, it was around 1999. Yeah, that was in 99. What, what was Oingo doing? Uh, Oingo tried to do a bunch of different things. The first thing we tried to build was, um, was an open source web directory, kind of like an open source Yahoo, uh, but a, a company pretty quickly called Nuhu, uh, also known as Dimas, um, open, open directory project. Um, they started doing it and we thought, oh, we can't do that. And we tried something else we called meaning-based search. So it was, it was like a search engine, but after you typed in a word, like the word Genesis, you'd have to clarify what, which meaning of the word Genesis you meant. Like Genesis the beginning, Genesis the band, Genesis the game controller. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought that was pretty fun and cool. And we got a lot of write-ups about it. But think about it. If you, every time you went into Google, you had to type a search in and then you had to qualify what search you meant, that would drive you crazy. So it wasn't a really good product. <laughs> so were you making money though? No, absolutely not. Um, we weren't making money. We Search engines weren't something you could make money on for a long time. Um, but we did come up with a different product called DomainSense. Mm-hmm. And that was when, a, when the domain name you were looking for wasn't available, you come up with a conceptually related alternative. I need that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people needed it. And so we started licensing that out for a few thousand dollars a month. And we strung together a handful of few thousand dollar a month deals you know, till we got to maybe twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a month, mm-hmm. which wasn't amazing, but it was enough that we actually raised a five and a half million dollar venture round. So, how did how did Oingo become Applied Semantics? Is, was this a different uh, project you guys were working on? Um, what tell us about that? So it's interesting. We launched AdSense in October of two thousand, called Oingo AdSense, and we showed AdSense to a lot of folks. Did Yahoo and LookSmart and AltaVista and the big search engines of the day. And everyone thought it was neat, but nobody really wanted to pay for it. And the general feedback we were getting is, we're a bunch of kids, internet people give everything away for free, and Oingo is a silly little kid internet name. So we realized we needed to just feel bigger and sound bigger and act bigger. And so we hired a couple senior level folks. Uh, you know, we used to call them like, or it used to be called gray hairs back then. Maybe they're still called gray hairs. Probably, yeah. Um, which has a whole other set of issues mm-hmm. with it. Um, and we, th- we thought we'd change this name into something that give ourselves a much more uh, uh, meaningful, significant feeling uh, icon uh, logo. So it was more about the brand at that point. Yeah. What, what's a company that can charge money? Oingo right. can't charge money, right. but Applied Semantics can. Right. So, Eitan, at what point the, does Applied Semantics get interest from Google? Um, so it's funny. We we got a phone call from Google six days after we launched. One phone call from Google. From When you launched Applied Semantics? When we launched Oingo back near 99. Oh, wow. Sergey left a message for Gil. Gil and Sergey had known each other uh, back in 90... Back um, when Sergey was a graduate student at Stanford, they kind of ran in the same circles. And Sergey was generally calling to say congratulations. And we probably listened to that voicemail like 20 times. Um, we were already really enamored with Google well before the world was enamored with Google because we were trying to build a search engine and theirs was just way better than ours. 
We essentially didn't really talk to them again for another three years. After we had gone and built a business, they were going and building a business, and then our paths crossed again uh, when we were when we had figured out AdSense after messing around with it for two years. Turns out that Google really wanted to do this thing. They called it contextual targeting, and uh, they had been working on it, and we'd been working on it concurrently. And we ran into a customer, um, and we won that customer, which was USA Today, and that sort of started the discussions. So when did the buyout happen? Yeah, so we probably started talking to them in late O2. Um, so things are pretty moving pretty quickly from you know the timeline, at least that you're saying. It probably doesn't feel like it at that point, but I mean, three years is pretty quick. It felt, I'm, I've left out a lot of the story, but I'm in sure, between yeah. 99 and 2000, we went through two sets of layoffs, two different CEOs, blew through all of our venture investment, uh, a couple inbound lawsuits that were nearly killed the company, and just like all kinds of infighting. It was probably the worst time in tech history, right? Like that, those couple of years during the crash. Yeah, everything was just generally awful and... Uh, it was just very hard to make progress. And we also went through 9-11 as a country, and that was just an awful time for everybody mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but 2002, late 2002 rolls around. We're starting to figure ourselves out. We start meeting with Google again. Uh, we get called up to a meeting with Google in February of 20, uh, 2003, a couple of months after we start talking. 15-year anniversary, huh? Yeah, just <laughs> almost. Yeah, yeah. It's coming up soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, and, uh, we expect the business development people that we'd been working with to be in the room, but instead it was Larry and Sergey and, uh, David Drummond and Jeff Donovan, basically the guys who ran the company, everyone except for Eric Schmidt, who we got to meet later that night. So Google acquires you for just over a hundred million dollars. So just right there overnight. Uh, well, I mean, not discounting all the hard work you did, yeah. but pretty much overnight you become a millionaire. How did that cha- change your your life? I mean, did it change it at all? You know, it's it's crazy the way that venture economics actually work. Um, I think that people assumed. The truth is, I actually did not become a millionaire that day, for a number of reasons. Um, number one. We had already diluted the company a good bit, right? The venture investors owned 30, 40% of the company. We'd already had, even we had 45 people working there. We had probably 70 or 80 people who had been through the company. We had 80 shareholders on the employee front. Um, we also had a deal with our venture firm where they essentially got to take most of the cash in the deal because they had this huge preference rights. So we essentially didn't get much of the cash from the deal and we got left with most more of the stock. Now at the time... Everyone thought we were getting the worst end of the deal. That's turned out to be better for us since Google stock's done well. Um, very well. Yeah, very well. But but really the the, 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 the bigger hits kind of came later. Like the, It took until the IPO until it was meaningful. So you got acquired and then you went and worked at Google. You were, you were head of um, do, the domain channel there. Yeah. Um, why did you go work there? Was that like... Part of the deal, or yeah, that's that's part of the deal. They you know they want to retain you, and um, they put good packages in front of us. And I thought it'd be great to go and work for Google. I mean, Google was the coolest company in the entire world, as far as we were concerned. And uh, it was still early. Google's only a thousand people. The world still didn't co- totally know Google, but we felt strongly about them. And you know, after four years of startup life, uh, the idea of being a little you know encompassed in a bigger corporation, you know. Uh, 
felt a little nice. Maybe maybe we get a couple more perks than we used to have. But was was it weird for you to go from owning what became a hundred million dollar worth company to working for another person or another you know for a corporation in this case? Uh, no, it felt good. It felt really nice. I think four years of startup life is sort of like eight years. And, you know, in terms of just like emotions, lack of sleep, hard work, uh, ups and downs. So I sort of kind of looked at, I knew I could get a lot of great work done at the company and move forward. Um, but it was also just time for a different experience for me. Yeah. And great work done. You did, uh, you were there for, you know, four years about and, uh, grew, grew it from 13 million to, to 600 million and even bigger, I'm sure. Uh, and then you left in 2007. Was that right? Yep. Uh, why did you leave? What did you leave to do? Um, I had always had, you asked earlier on, you were talking about what did I want to do in college? When I got to college, I actually kind of wanted to be a film major and I was sort of, kind of talked out of it, which was great. I really do appreciate that. Who talked but, you out of it? Uh, just my my dad, my brother, and uh, a, a good family friend who I was working for at the time. Mm-hmm. So the three of them were just like, do not do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I thought after I did all this, I want to go and make short films for a year. Films, yeah. Film. So I was making, I was one of the first YouTube creators made a bunch of short films, um, a couple I'm really proud of that still live the Museum of Tolerance today. And was this when YouTube was part of Google or was it like a just an up-and-coming company? Uh, this is after YouTube got acquired, yeah. Um, so I, I, I have an early channel there. It still exists called Shake State. So you now are just kind of pursuing your passions, taking a break from, I wouldn't say taking a break from working completely, but taking a break from, you know, building a company and then working another, you know, billion-dollar company. At what point do you decide, okay, I think, I think I'm ready to, you know, do something again, build something again myself? Well, I guess I've done that three times now. So uh, it, I guess it hits me every three, four years. Okay. So how long has it been since the last one? Well, we started Social Native <laughs> in the year uh, 2015. We're, we're about that time. No, okay. we're not due yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not due yet. Um, you know... I, uh, I've got three operating companies out there that I care deeply about and need to see through. So I, I don't, I don't foresee myself doing another one right now. We got hands full. So let's talk a little bit about Scopely because I know that was a, that was a big project of yours. Um, tell us about how, you know, that came about and, um, you know, how you got it to where it is today. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that my co-founder Walter Driver is, is a, is a beast of an entrepreneur in every way that you can measure an entrepreneur. How did, how did you two meet? Uh, we met through just like um, tech networking events. Um, there's a dinner that Mike Jones and Peter Pham of Science put together, and me and Walter met at that dinner. We ended up hanging outside the restaurant that night and talking for like an hour and reconnected a couple times, reconnected at Coachella, um, and we just, you know, we just liked to hang out. We started becoming friends and I started recognizing that, you know, I thought, I thought he was a, a quality entrepreneur. I don't think I really fully appreciated the magnitude of the man that Walter Driver is um, until years into us building Scopely. Um, but he's a guy who's got a tremendous vision, uh, just no need for sleep and food for days at a time. And just a, a desire to win, and so uh, 
I mean, he did go to Coachella and so did you. So that's yeah. pretty much what it is. Right. We've got that. And uh, uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we worked hard to build that business. But, um, but, but, but Walter, you know, I think selecting a co-founder is probably about the most important decision you make. And I was fortunate to s- select, you know, th- the greatest entrepreneur in L.A. right now. You know, next to Elon Musk. So, Eitan, you've now built Scopely. You're, you know, growing that. What, what causes this itch inside you to, like, keep doing other things, to keep on building another company? You know, it's not easy, like you said earlier. It's not it, – it's, in fact, probably double the work. You know, if you said four years is, like, eight years. But you kind of – you kept doing it. It wasn't stopping you. That hard work wasn't a turnoff. In fact, it seems more like it – you 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 didn't want to take the easy path. It's, you you wanted to challenge yourself. I'm clearly at least partially crazy slash addicted. I mean, there's. I think if you have some sort of an entrepreneur gene, it's a little hard not to want to do stuff when you see an opportunity. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. just want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I joke. It's it's a bit of a sickness in a sense that like when you see an opportunity, you you want to do it so bad that you. You like you'll put other things aside for it. I mean, it's it's a blessing and a curse. Um, yeah, it truly is. I want to talk about this distinction between just general entrepreneurship. Like some people, you know, might be working a full time job and then come across a really good opportunity and they take it and they kind of just ride it out. Um, and you know, some some ideas take longer than others. You know, perhaps for an exit or whatever it may be. Uh, but in your case, you know, you're you're more like a serial entrepreneur. I mean, you've had like really quick stints and just grew companies uh, multiple and you know uh, to 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 a really large state. Um, how how do you see that distinction? Like, how does who I guess is um, fit to be like a serial entrepreneur versus like just an entrepreneur? If that makes sense. Who is fit to be an entrepreneur? I mean, anybody, listen, I think anybody, anybody who sort of has the itch should give this thing a try. Um, but, you know, I think it shows up early in life. I feel like the conversations I've had with the other entrepreneurs, that they always had something they were trying to get done early on in life, like sell baseball cards or sell mixtapes or go to a comic book convention or they just... They figure out something that like a one like one kid can do, you know. Usually, it was selling something around their neighborhood, and it's a common story that I just kind of have heard many times over. Um, yeah, Eitan, what I also find very interesting is that you know you built these companies, and you know, obviously you have to have have had tremendous success, but you've also helped other companies. You know, you're, you're an investor uh, and. I think the the article that I came across that I saw it said that you were quote unquote most imper- important person in LA tech. Um, I guess you know this is where you can kind of brag and you know and, and we would encourage that. But what what makes you the most important person in LA tech? Is it the connections that you have? Is it the experience that you have? Is it all of that? But you know h- how did you get to that point? Those were very kind words. Um, I would say that uh, I've certainly. My experience, I've, I've been here in L.A. Tech for eight, eight, 19 years now, and uh, that's, that's a long tenure here in L.A. Tech. So you certainly build a network. And I'm truly committed to, I'm truly committed to making my investors money. Um, I think that's an important point about an entrepreneur. Like, is this someone who wants to return capital? 
And I care deeply about the idea of looking an investor in the eye and saying, I'm doing everything I can and I will do everything I can and I to return capital. Um, and so I, I think reputation is important. So tell us a little bit about the projects that you have going on now. Um, you're obviously working on a couple different ones, Render Media being one of them, Social Native the other. Um, and I'm not sure how much you're involved in, in your other projects, but you know, tell us about what's going on. Yeah, so I'm spending most of my time right now uh, running Render Media. We're a digital publishing. So for folks who aren't familiar with us, we probably look a little bit like a BuzzFeed. We've got a news channel called America Now. Uh, we've got also a news property called Opposing Views. Uh, we have a food channel called Cooking Panda, and Cooking Panda's got really strong engagement. Um, again, similarity to something like a BuzzFeed Tasty, uh, but we we make a lot of branded food videos. I've been fairly excited about the idea of on Facebook you can just get such such a mouthpiece. Um, you know, you can get so many video views for for putting stuff together. So it's fun to do the news, fun to uh, you know, um, yeah, you participate in in the current events. I don't want to get too political, but I think I have to here with, you know, you brought up news and uh, we, we all know that, you know, of the political climate that, you know, the news, that word has been in. Uh, it's like the most famous thing right now in the world is news. Yeah. Um, w- without getting into, you know, I guess mm-hmm. personal politics, how, how does the current administration and the um, the rhetoric affect a company like yours that is really in the media news business? Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, the scent of Trump helped news views. I mean, it just, he was kind of a cash cow for views. Um, there was always something to talk about. And all of the news media took advantage of that, right? They put Trump on the air all the time. And, uh, you know, I think it had a meaningful impact on on the election. So... It, from, from what I see from all the work that you've done, it seems as though you're just a – you're very passionate about content in general. I, I think if I had to like really go and break it down, like content would be that broad term that you're you know interested in. You said that you enjoy, you know, you know film, you know, that you wanted to, you know, be a filmmaker. You started, you know, so many different companies focused around news, you know, just media. Like you're, you're a content kind of guy. Um why do you think that is? Or, you know, where does that stem from? That's a good question. Um, my father was always a storyteller. I never thought about that question until just this moment. My father was was a storyteller. He was the, the principal of the school. He was always telling stories to, to the kids. And, um, you know, I think we, we communicate all of our life lessons through these stories. I think stories are really powerful. And I think it's... It's so amazing. We've we've been able to tell some stories on opposing views that have reached, you know, north of fifty million people last year. Wow. Um, it's I think it's wow from an engagement perspective. Now we don't get paid for it. There's no monetization there. But you know we we told fifty three million people that if you replace detention with meditation uh, in schools, the kids will behave better and will be less, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, less of problem children. Um, and it's true, like schools started doing it and they kids got suspended less and they feel better about themselves. And that's like, it's hard for me to imagine that dozens of school districts or administrations didn't see this and try it. Yeah, it's funny you bring up the, the concept of meditation because um, 
we all know like when, it, when, when you're meditating, they say, you know, focus on one thing and just stick to that. Um, how does that translate over to entrepreneurship? Because in your case, um, you know, as a serial entrepreneur, you have all these different projects going on. How do you stay focused? The, you know, the one thing in life I keep saying I want to make more time for is meditation. It is hard. I mean, email, phone, computer, laptop, iPad, times three companies. It's, it's insane. It'll, it'll, it'll take you over. And, uh, there's definitely many days where it's taken me over and I, I, I have to learn to fight back against technology and notifications. Yeah. So where do you draw the line? Like, how do you manage all your projects right now? Um, is it like a schedule that you have and you stick to it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing like you, you can't possibly stick to a schedule. I don't, I don't have a schedule that I stick to and it's probably something I should have in life. Aton, to kind of wrap things up here, I think that our listeners and both Patrick and I, we agree that, you know, there's been a lot of success on, you know, your business ventures, but what does Aton consider a success? I mean, is it the financial part of it? Is it making a difference, you know, by putting out that news and content that is clearly changing lives? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what what's making you happy? What 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 is it that you're saying... I'm, I'm successful. Well, my family. Um, when I, I, I love working on business and uh, I love working on these projects, but, you know, fulfillment comes from spending time with my family and, uh, you know, just playing some guitar and, uh, you know, tell, telling those closest to me that I care about them and, and, uh, and have them do the same for me. Awesome. Well, Aton, thank you so much for your time. We wish you the best of luck with all your business ventures, all the personal ventures. And, you know, we hope to, you know, see you again and see, you know, the success that you have both in the personal and professional world. Thanks so much, guys. Awesome. Thank you.